What if you could lose weight and save the planet at the same time? Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we'll hear why eating less meat could be the solution to a slimmer body and a happier planet. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In just a moment, food writer extraordinaire Mark Bittman will join us to talk about his new book, Food Matters, A Guide to Conscious Eating. But first, let's hit the streets to get a sense of what people's diets are like these days. My name is Matt Carella. I'm from Long Island, New York. I eat a lot of garbage, but uh, I feel guilty about it sometimes, and I try to make up for it when I remember. Sometimes it's easier to uh, grab some kind of like chips or something than it is to find fruits and vegetables. My name is Ruben Rosado, and I'm from the Bronx, New York area. I'm a 100% meat eater, so I do eat a lot of meat. When I order a hamburger, usually we a half a pound to a pound of a burger. My name is Loomis Mayer. Uh, I live in Croton-on-Hudson, New York. I eat a lot of, not really junk food, but too much sweet and starchy food. I'm more apt to just heat up frozen dinners. My name is Bunny Garofalo, and I'm from Levittown, New York, Long Island. I try to eat a lot of vegetables and fruit and just chicken. I eat very little meat. I meditate, so I try to concentrate when I'm eating to focus on the food. My name is Tyler Boston. I'm from Dorset, Vermont, and I'm a student in Fordham University. It's kind of difficult to eat fruits and vegetables at the calf, but I eat what I can. So far today, I've had a sandwich, a bowl of pasta, and a salad. My name is, last name is Ahmed, first name is Abdurrahman. I live in Valley Cottage, Rockland County. I eat mostly twice a day, not three times, twice a day. Lunch and dinner. So far today I ate a little bit sandwich with a little cheese and ham and I drank half cup of soda till now, that's it. I make sure I eat enough but not a lot. My name is... Uh... Ahmad Badi, I come from Egypt. I live in uh, Yorktown Heights, Westchester County, upstate New York. I love uh, vegetable and I love fruit a lot. Now I'm looking for uh, the snacks. It has low fat and no cholesterol, uh, no trans fat, no all these things. Today so far I eat like, in the lunch I eat like... Uh, have a sandwich, uh, pastrami with uh, mustard and Swiss uh, cheese. My name is Hertha, very odd. Last name is Marburger. I live in Manhattan. Ever since I was a child, I don't eat much, but I eat all the wrong things. <laughs> um, just now I had a meatball hero and a bottle of Coke. And I'm waiting for my sister to come back, and we'll stop in the pastry shop, and I'll have some of that. What can I tell you? Very bad eating habits. In his new book called Food Matters, New York Times food writer Mark Bittman says eating more plants and less meat is the way to go. He says it won't only improve your health, but the Earth's as well. I recently met with Bittman at the New York Times, where my first question was, what did you eat for breakfast? What I had for breakfast today was pretty interesting because I was sort of, I was quite hungry. I'd gone running. So I had um, one of my oddball 
breakfasts of steel-cut oats, dried mushrooms, dried tomatoes. What else did I put in there? Some cut-up celery. And uh, I think I think that was about it. And then water and soy sauce. Yeah, I was going to say, you'll throw everything but the kitchen sink into some of your recipes. You have a recipe for oatmeal, and you recommend drizzling soy sauce and, I believe, scallions, right? I don't actually recommend it. I just say this is something I do that I enjoy, and, you know, I have a lot of experience with food. I guess I have a fairly broad palate, and um, you might want to try it. I also have had oatmeal with tapenade and olive oil, which I think is fabulous, so... You know, some people will say, ew, or some people will say, wow, and some people will say, how curious. But, um, you know, it's just it's just food. I mean, you can eat whatever. If people eat cold pizza for breakfast. Other people are obviously going to be repelled by that. So not everything is for everybody. But, um, you know, I have a lot of ideas. And as I said, I have a fairly broad, I don't know if I have a broad palate, but I have a wide tolerance. <laughs> Walking over here, I noticed a number of fast food establishments packed with customers. There was a place on the corner of 9th and 41st, I believe, that was packed with people outside woofing down pizza. Are they doing anything wrong, these people? Well, those people are eating 99 cent per slice pizza, um, which so they're doing something right because they're having a very cheap lunch. Um, no, I mean, my, my feeling is that um, there's no food that's particularly bad and there's actually no food that's particularly good. There's food that is benign food that's beneficial and food that's harmful in large quantities. But on any given day, having pizza for lunch is not a terrible thing. If you're having pizza for lunch four times a week and you're having cheeseburgers for lunch the other three times a week, you're not eating in a way that's particularly helpful to anybody or anything. And that needs to be evaluated. I mean, that's what I'm saying to people. You need to evaluate. You need to consciously look at what you're eating and you need to say, oh, look, I'm eating 1,000 calories for lunch every day, or, oh, look, I'm eating 1,000 calories of uh, non-sustainable food every day. This is Maybe I don't want to do that. Your book starts with a very startling statistic from the U.N. Food and Agriculture Organization on livestock production, global livestock production. What is that stat? The stat, which actually was recently confirmed by Scientific American, the stat is that 18% of greenhouse gases are generated by industrial livestock production worldwide, which basically means, I mean, if you, this, is, this is not a stretch, this is a direct, uh, this follows, eating meat causes global warming. Doesn't only, it's not the only thing that causes global warming, but it is actually livestock production is the second highest generator of greenhouse gases in the world after energy production. So that's a big deal. So to the extent you eat less meat, your carbon footprint is smaller. A lot of people, of course, would question, well, how does eating meat lead to global warming? What's the answer there? There are several factors. Um, Some of it has to do with land degradation. Some of it has to do with the fact that 50% of all uh, corn and soy grown in the United States is fed to those industrially raised animals. And if that food were used to feed humans, it would be used much more efficiently because the conversion rate of corn and soy to meat is very low. You have to give animals a lot of grain to get a relatively small amount of meat out of them, whereas if you give that grain directly to humans, it sustains them. So there's that. Then there's the um, well-known cow flatulence issue, which is not a joke. You know, people laugh at that. But um, cows produce a great deal of methane, and methane is several times higher than carbon dioxide in producing several times more efficient, I guess is the word, 
then carbon dioxide at, uh, as a greenhouse gas. And then there's all the energy that goes into transporting meat and into slaughterhouses and into processing and into packaging, which is an enormous cost, and so on down the line. It winds up being a lot. Plus, we slaughter 10 billion, that's with the B, animals a year. So the number, this is in just the United States, in the world, it's 60 billion. So the number is, you know, that is a phenomenal, phenomenal number. So you know, every little bit helps, every little bit hurts. There are some people who believe that they're eating responsibly when they eat grass-fed beef or when they eat organic. Well, two different issues. Grass-fed beef is actually not, if anything, it may be slightly worse in terms of greenhouse gases. Clearly, the animal's being treated better. That's a good thing. But you have to clear, in most part, you have to, at this point, when people are doing grass-fed beef, they're clearing forests because there's not much pasture left to to raise beef on, and they still generate that huge amount of methane we were talking about. All the other costs, many of the other costs remain the same. Organic is a different story, but, um, you know, I think organic, I think grass-fed, I think organic, I think local are all kind of red herrings when it comes to this stuff because organic, you know, you can, you can raise animals in confinement and torture them every day, but if you feed them organic feed, they're still organic. So that is not, to me, the, the spirit of what organic meant or should mean. That is just adhering to a regulation. But there's plenty of industrially produced meat and industrially produced vegetables, for that matter, that can be labeled organic. It doesn't really mean they're good. It just means they're organic. What do you say to people who say, meat equals protein? That's why I eat meat. This is the biggest bill of goods that has been sold to us uh, for the last 60 or 70 years. Well, 50 or 60 years. The biggest bill of goods imaginable because the fact is all food, almost all food, contains protein. Some plants contain more protein per calorie than animal products. So it's not really a question of meat equals protein or animal products equal protein. All food has protein. Meat and animal products are very high in protein, but the fact is most Americans get two or three times as much protein as they need on a given on, a, on any given day. So this annoys me more than anything else because it's really just nonsense. You don't advocate a vegetarian diet. You're just saying eat less meat, more plants, right? I'm actually against a vegetarian diet, not because I think that um, it's worse, but because I think it's misleading. If you question the reasons why people become vegetarians, they don't want to eat animals, they don't want to torture animals, they don't want to, they want to lower their intake of saturated fat, or they want to lower their cholesterol, or they want to reduce global warming, whatever. None of those is really, or they want to be healthier in general, none of those is really an essential part of being a vegetarian. If you're eating a lot of dairy, if you just swap out meat for dairy, you're still torturing animals, you're still contributing to global warming to the extent that you eat dairy, you're still eating a lot of fat for the most part and probably raising your cholesterol. I mean, again, all of these things need to be taken individually and, and under consideration. The real key is to reduce consumption of meat, animal products in general, highly processed foods, and junk foods. That's the key. Now, that doesn't mean become a vegetarian. That means become a person who eats less of those particular foods and what it means in the and and forever I'm talking about for the rest of your life and what it means in the short run on a meal by meal basis is what am I having and does this make sense what am I going to eat and does this make sense here's where I am right now I have no time I'm in a hurry I'm going to go have two slices of pizza and a coke fine now what are you doing for dinner 
I have no time. I'm in a hurry. I'm going to go eat two cheeseburgers, fries, and a shake. Okay, well, now you have a pattern that you need to examine. If you have the two slices of pizza and the Coke for lunch, and then you go ahead and have rice and beans for dinner or salad or some cooked vegetables or whatever, now you've done what I'm trying to advocate, which is to say, let's look at each meal individually. Some of them need not be the healthiest things in the world. Some of them can be extremely meager. Some of them can be extremely luxurious. It doesn't really matter. The the question is, how does this look over the long term? And over the long term, if you have 10 or 20% of your calories coming from meat or processed foods or junk food, that's not a lot. Over the long term, if, like many Americans, you have 80% coming from meat, processed foods, junk food, that's way too much for your health, for the planet, for the animals, blah, blah. You describe your personal regimen as vegan till six, right? I don't describe it that way. Someone else did. But um, that's what I do. But I want to be very clear that I'm not being prescriptive about this. I don't – the prescription that I have, the the advice that I have for people is – Eat consciously. Eat sanely. Think about what you're eating. Bear in mind what I'm saying and what you read everywhere, which is that, you know, and this sounds a little broken recordy, but this is the core message here. Meat, processed food, junk food really needs to be cut back in most Americans' diets. Plants need to be eaten more in most Americans' diets. In fact, you can't eat too many. It's impossible to eat too many plants. Now, the way this works for me is that, yes, I... Between when I wake up and when I have dinner, I am very, very strict. And I have vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, and nuts. And that's all I have. And I eat most of those things every day. And I eat them randomly. And I sometimes have odd breakfasts like the one I described before. I sometimes have oatmeal for breakfast. For lunch, I have whatever the sort of pretty much vegan options are in the cafeteria. I don't eat bread during the day. And then at night, I eat, I eat what I want to eat. And tonight, I'm going to a really good restaurant. I'll wind up eating five varieties of seafood, and I'll probably wind up eating some meat, too. And no doubt, I'll have dessert, and I'll have wine, and I'll have bread, and I'll probably have cheese, too, and I'll be way, way full. And this is what works for me. For other people, just some kind of moderation might work better. So, you know, again, they might just look at each meal that they're eating and eat less meat, less animal products, less junk food, and so on. No particular meal matters. Any meal can be a blowout. Any meal can be, oh, I'm having some carrots and celery. It's not if you have the carrots and celery, it doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't make you skinny. It doesn't make you smart. It means that that's a meal in which you had carrots and celery. The the reverse is also true. If you have a seven-course blowout, it doesn't make you evil. It doesn't make you dumb. The question is to look at your long-term patterns and to make sure that on the whole there's sort of more carrots and celery, et cetera, et cetera, in your diet, in your diet, in your life than there is for the average American. And, you know, the average American eats half a pound of meat a day. It's a lot. And about a pound and a half of other animal products a day. So about two pounds a day of animal products. And then on top of that, a bunch of processed and junk food. You're almost at three pounds at that point, which is all we eat in a given day. So it's really just a question of, in the long run, changing those proportions, getting the plants on a heavier side of the equation and the animal products and and the processed foods on the lighter side of the equation. Your book, Food Matters, is one part recipe book, and you have a number of recipes in there where you do turn the proportions upside down, the proportion between plant and meat products. Now, there's a recipe in there for spinach and sweet potato salad drizzled with warm bacon dressing. Serves four, 
only two slices of bacon in that recipe. It's a good one that you picked because when people ask me to tell three sort of symbolic or representative recipes from the book, that's one of them. And um, I do think it's perfect because it's a great salad. Everybody likes sweet potatoes, spinach, raw, this is raw spinach, raw spinach salad, sort of classic. Then you make this dressing from uh, a couple slices of bacon and, and olive oil vinegar. I can't remember precisely what's in it, but it becomes this very meaty, smoky, bacony dressing completely changes the way the salad looks and tastes and feels. And certainly this is not a vegetarian salad, but is this a salad with the proportions that I'm talking about? Yes, it is. If you did this kind of thing of turning food on its head, if you made beef stew with 90% vegetables and much less beef, if you made chili with more beans and less meat, if you made uh, you know, vegan vegetable soup and so on down the line, and you, and you sort of pull back on the animal products in a lot of your cooking and push forward on the plants in a lot of your cooking, you've changed the proportions from maybe 50-50 or 70-30 to 50-50 or 30-70. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the direction things need to go in. You also advise eating fewer refined carbohydrates, and you have changed the way you cook pasta. There's another recipe in your book, Orchietti and Broccoli Rob. You know, you're very sharp. So that's another representative recipe. Um, I did a story about this for the Times about a year ago, and I'm not quite sure... I'm not quite sure that this style of cooking pasta was completely intentional on my part, like oh, let's invent something that goes along with the way I'm talking about eating, or whether it was just happenstance. But in any case, I got this idea that um, we, or I, typically would cook a pound of pasta for three or four people and coat it with a cup or maybe two cups of sauce. And I thought, well, if refined carbohydrates aren't that great for us, why not cut back on the pasta, which we all like, and increase the sauce, which we like too, but just change the proportions of this dish. So now I do, for four people, half a pound of pasta and three or four cups of sauce. And, you know, if you look at the nutritional breakdown of a dish like that, you've completely changed the profile from something that looks like high-calorie, very starchy, very low-fiber, almost no micronutrients, to something that has loads of fiber micronutrients, much less starch, much lower calorie. This is sort of what, what we're after. And by the way, lots of flavor and still plenty of that sort of pasta chew that you want. Should we be concerned about what kinds of fats we intake? I don't worry about what kinds of fat I eat, and I don't particularly worry about how much of it I eat. I just know that if I, you know, I spend, say I spend two-thirds of my meals being somebody who eats mostly plants, as I said before, and legumes and whole grains, and I'm not talking about fried food, although occasionally I have that during the day also, then I know there's just not a lot of fat in that food. There's just not going to be a lot of fat. By the way, there's not a lot of calories. So then at night, I feel like I don't have to worry about this at all. I can eat whatever kind of fat I want. That I, I don't See, here's the thing. I don't really want to be thinking about this stuff all the time. I mean, it's fine to be you know, the book just came out. I'm talking about it day and night. That's one thing. But in my life, I don't want to say, is it okay if I use olive oil instead of safflower oil? Is it okay if I use butter instead of olive oil? Is it okay if I use lard instead of butter? I don't want to have to make those decisions. I want to say, here's a dish that I really want to cook with butter and be able to do that. So my rule is I don't have those kind of dishes during the day, and at night if I want to cook with butter, I cook with butter. That being said, what are the essentials that everyone should have in their pantry? I'd say too long a list to get into here, but, 
But you want to have a variety of whole grains. You want to have a variety of legumes. You want to have nuts because they're, they are really great to snack on. And I don't, you know, people, this gets back to your fat question. People talk about nuts as being a high-fat food, but they're also, and they are, but they're protein-dense and they're, they're very filling. So compared to a potato chip, they have a really great nutritional profile. Compared to a salad, they don't have such a great nutritional profile. But we're not going to all eat salads all the time. Anyway, so I have nuts. I have legumes. I have whole grains. I try to keep vegetables in the refrigerator. It's important to have onions and lemons and long-keeping stuff like that around, olive oil, good vinegar, soy sauce. That's sort of the very basic stuff. But I have found in the last, and this is not really that closely related to food matters. This is related to how to be a real cook, how to be someone who cooks well and, and sustains himself or herself by cooking, that if you have a good pantry, if you have a variety of food in the house that keeps for a long time, you are going to cook well, you're going to cook easily, you're going to have what you need on hand, you're going to find yourself improvising a lot more, and you're going to eat a lot better. Just going grocery shopping, though, can be confusing when you look at labels. What's your advice for people? I know that you have a five-ingredient rule. Am I right there? Yeah, well, I would say that if a food has more than five ingredients, I mean, this is not, everybody says this. Everybody who knows how to read a label says this. If a food has more than five ingredients, it's probably not food anymore. And there's also going to be ingredients in there that aren't food. You know, label reading is, a, is something that takes time and it can be confusing. If you buy food, that, you know, until 50 years ago, food didn't have labels. Until 20 years ago, things didn't have nutritional information on them. Until 100 years ago, nothing was packaged. Things, you know, the reason broccoli doesn't have a label is because you know that it's broccoli. So to the extent that you can stick with foods that don't have labels at all because they are food, then you don't have to worry about that either. I mean, olive oil doesn't have a label. Nuts don't have a label. They do. But, you know, you're talking about things with one or at the most two ingredients. You don't need to go beyond that. Is the government doing anything right when it comes to promoting healthy eating? Your book talks a lot about the wrong, but are they doing anything right? Well, to the extent that they give us the information that we need to make these decisions, they are. Um, we do need labeling on things so we can see how bad a lot of food is and we can ignore it. I, some of it, I think, should be outlawed. It's not. I would prefer that it were. There is good information. You know, the USDA website is filled with interesting information, good information. There are people in the USDA who are well-intentioned. I just think that they're overwhelmed by the sentiment in the USDA, which is to support the business of agriculture. You know, the business of America is doing business. So once you sort of understand that, that's what the USDA supports. The FDA, understaffed. The EPA, understaffed. They're all underfunded. So when they're underfunded, they spend a lot of their time scrambling for money or supporting the people who are going to give them money, and they have a lot of lobbyists after them. And people like me and even more famous people, Alice Waters, Michael Pollan, um, people who have been doing this work for a long time, we are a small voice, a small community, but I do think we're growing. And I think that this can be a grassroots movement of people who eat well and think about food in the right way that doesn't really need the government to flourish. Food Matters is not a diet book, but we should point out that you lost a lot of weight eating this way. Food Matters is not a diet book. Thank you very much. Food Matters is, a, I guess, a lifestyle book or a eat this way, think about this, eat this way forever. I started eating this way, and um, my goal was not particularly to lose weight and 15 pounds. One month and 15 pounds later, I had to go buy new pants and then two months later, I had lost another 15 or 20 pounds. So 
That's because meat, dairy, processed food, junk food are all what's called calorie-dense. Now, the argument in favor of eating meat is that it's nutrient-dense also, and we, can, we sort of addressed that before. But those foods have a lot of calories per bite, basically, per volume, per mass, per everything. They have a lot of calories. Plants, legumes, fruits and vegetables, legumes, and uh, whole grains are much less calorie-dense. So you can eat by volume, you can eat more, and still lose weight because you aren't eating as many calories per bite, per volume, per whatever measurement you choose. So that's what happens to me. That's what happened to me. Um, I don't lose weight anymore. I guess I'm at some kind of new natural stasis, but I don't gain any either. My guess is that most people who are overweight who start eating this way, that is changing the proportion of the foods they eat to favor plants over animal products and processed foods, will lose weight. We'll see, because more and more people are doing it. The ones that I run into say, yeah, I'm losing weight. Mark Bittman, thank you so much. Nice talking to you, George. Mark Bittman writes the Minimalist column for The New York Times. His new book, Food Matters, A Guide to Conscious Eating, is out now from Simon & Schuster. Vegetables, vegetables, you have to eat your vegetables, vegetables. Forget about vegetables for a moment. Can eating peanut butter and jelly help slow global warming? One activist says, yes, it can. Jennifer Sveta Jordan caught up with the founder of the PB&J campaign. So we just spread some peanut butter on your banana bread. Would you like to try it? Yeah. Okay. Bernard Brown is trying to get people to see the peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a new light. On his website, there's a saintly glow behind a graphic of the sandwich. He thinks eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich could just save the planet. Brown estimates that eating one peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch versus, say, a ham sandwich or a burger saves nearly 3.5 pounds of greenhouse gas emissions and 280 gallons of water. In Brown's kitchen, he waves a peanut butter-covered knife he explains why he's using this comfort food to change the world. Why peanut butter and jelly? Like, like it's a pretty processed, highly processed uh, kind of. Yeah, it's it's because it's the most familiar um, food I could think of that didn't have that was that was sort of purely plant based and didn't wasn't animal based at all. It's one of these things where you know people might be scared by words like vegan or vegetarian, but there's absolutely nothing alternative about peanut butter and jelly. What's more, some experts suggest Brown's not, well, nuts. A Princeton bioethicist says if 100 million Americans, that's one of three of us, traded a burger for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it would make an impact on the environment. And if we made the same choice three times a week, it would make a huge impact. Those who worry that Brown's dietary suggestions might make a huge impact on the waistline take heart. A serving of two tablespoons of peanut butter does have nearly 200 calories and 16 grams of fat, But the fat is not the worrisome, saturated type, and there's some evidence that eating a small amount of nuts each day might reduce the risk of heart disease and even prevent cancer. Of course, Brown and nutritionists still suggest partnering a low-sugar peanut butter with whole-grain breads and low-sugar jellies, or even fresh fruit. And Brown hopes people consider moving beyond the peanut butter and jelly. On the website, we go into other different other foods that people could could try. A bean burrito is a good example. Uh, You know, black bean soup. Uh, falafel. We even tried mentioning tofu. I'm not sure if it scares people away. Brown really wants to win over people by keeping the campaign from becoming a crusade. 
He says that even a vegetarian like him is turned off by overly radical, moralistic, or bloody efforts against meat-eating or for saving the world. I think people have a lot of messages that, you know, things are very scary, you must change your life. And so it's to try to come in with a softer approach, I think. The idea, at least, is to reach people who aren't reached with the more intense messages. Brown hopes to disarm you with playfulness. And what could be more playful than playing with your food? Turning peanut butter and jelly sandwiches into people. On a laptop computer, Brown calls up a slideshow he's made of a gingerbread-style cutout couple, peanut butter and jelly boy and girl. They're making a snowman and chatting. When PBJ boy gets a little sad, his companion wonders why. He's concerned that global warming will mean there won't be conditions for making snowmen in the future. Can you read this one? They're very sophisticated. The girl says, oh, PB&J boy, while anthropogenic global climate change is a serious problem, it should only affect the planet gradually, and probably will be able to build snowmen next year. And then PB&J boy says, well, I guess it makes me feel better, but what if our grandkids never see snow? The girl says if we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it might stay snowy in the winter. Then she backs up Brown's claim that it's easy enough to do. Just have a sandwich that looks a lot like her and visit the pbjcampaign.org website. PBJ boy and girl are just the beginning. Brown has a jar full of more cookie cutters like those he used to make the boy and girl. He figures a wider variety of peanut butter and jelly creatures could act in slideshows and carry out other environmental messages. Brown's not just limiting his work to online skits. He's also trying to build a calculator into his site so visitors can register the number of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches they've eaten. Then he can track the impact. No matter what, though, Brown plans for the campaign to remain light, fun, and easy to swallow. For the Environment Report, this is Jennifer Shveta-Jordan. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. 